got, we're not doing too bad this morning. You know, sickness has been sort of a revolving door, and many in the church are still going through it, so it's great to have folks online as well as in person. I might say, too, um, you know, we tell people uh, Lion and Lamb is led by a group of elders, a team of elders. We don't have a senior pastor model, and uh, thank God we don't. You know, a week and change ago, uh, Kath and I got sick again. And, you know, you don't know how long that's going to last. So you're sort of playing it by ear and, you know, got the fever and I can't eat and I'm laid up. And, and Thursday rolled around. And I'm qualifying everything I do by am I going to get better and how soon am I going to get better. And I've got a wedding rehearsal to do Thursday night and a wedding Friday night. And I'm scrambling because I am not about to go in my contaminated state and put those folks in front of their honeymoon in harm's way. So God bless Kent Vincent. So Thursday afternoon, Kent says, yes, I'll do the rehearsal. Friday night, yes, I'll do the wedding. And so they got hitched and they're on their honeymoon still. And then, yeah. And uh, God bless Bill Byer. Bill was the only elder here last week, I believe. COVID and two or three other houses out of five. Uh, we, you know, we, we were the, the nine pins knocked down. And Bill says, you know, we're going to be skinny for Sunday school. We could cancel. We're, we, we can't staff nursery and Sunday school. We knew by that point, too. Bill says, you know, why don't I just take my Sunday school message, and that'll be the message for the worship service. And it was great, and I heard from multiple people how timely it was and how great it was. Anyway, I'm loving it. I'm loving being one guy of several that has responsibility for the church. That's just God's blessing, and I love that. I want to say thank you to those guys, and thanks to the Lord, too. So for us who are here, let's go back, do a little English lesson here. Oh, by the way, so I've received a little bit of razzing this morning already, uh, it's important for me, just related to teaching, that you pick up a bulletin because my study notes are in there, and I want you to get the benefit of my study notes. And this morning, there's two pages of study notes, and that's, that's why I was hearing a little bit about that this morning. But I am starting a new series, which we'll get into in just a minute, and one of those sheets is the introduction alone. I do have seven pages of manuscript, so lay back, relax. That's also why I'll hurry through this a little bit. Anyway, back to grade school, perhaps, maybe high school. little English lesson here. Some of you may know this one by heart. I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree. A tree whose hungry mouth is pressed against the earth's sweet flowing breast. A tree that looks at God all day and lifts her leafy arms to pray. A tree that may in summer wear a nest of robins in her hair, upon whose bosom snow has lain, who intimately lives with rain. The last concluding line, poems are made by fools like me, but, somebody say it? Only God can make a tree. Only God can make a tree. Uh, Joyce Kilmer was an American journalist, poet, literary critic, lecturer. He was very well known in his day. But these days, this poem is the only reason his name probably comes up in memory at all. He died in action in World War I, July 20th, 1918. It's a great and it's a lovely poem. And if you have any sort of short collection of American poets, that's almost certainly one of the ones that's in that. But what a great line, too. Only God can make a tree. Only God can make a tree. Trees are a big deal, aren't they? If you think of the earth broadly, largely, trees are like the lungs of the world. You know, they take in what we breathe out. They take in carbon dioxide and they give out oxygen. That's a good thing for us. We breathe in trees' waste product. They breathe in our waste products and somehow God makes that all work. I love trees. I hope you do too. You know, as a boy, I love trees because I climbed them. And not only the spruce tree in our side yard, but uh, where I grew up in central Topeka, we had a row of mulberry trees along our border with the Schraders. And man, I'm telling you, my brothers and I and the other neighborhood boys, we were monkeys in those trees. And we loved climbing them in the summer. They were mulberry trees, so you can imagine when the mulberries were ripe, we were stained, fingers, mouths, purple for sure. 
this may sound counterintuitive, but it's not. I, I loved logging. I worked for a season as a logger, cutting trees down in the northwest Montana. I had a great time doing that. You know, the, the beauty of that in part was my brother and I would drive through the evergreen forests every day to and from work. It was just a lovely experience. And then when you felled these trees that had been there for 100, 200, 300, 400 years, big trees, you knew they were ending up as plywood and lumber in people's homes. It was a good thing, God's resource for us. If you've been along the Pacific coast, as we have, you can stand under trees that are taller than the Capitol building, trees over 300 feet tall. There are cedar trees in country right behind where my brother lives in the state of Washington that this sounds like an exaggeration, and it's not, that we guessed were 24 feet in diameter, 30 feet above the ground, cedar trees. Those were probably a couple thousand years old in an area that had been logged long ago. They weren't logged because they had already fallen. They were already in disrepair, thousands of years old. Robert Frost, one of my favorite poets, wrote memorably of trees in his poem called Birches. If you haven't read it, it's worth reading, especially for little boys. He concluded, one could do worse than be a swinger of birches. You know, the imagery is the little boy climbs up the, the, the uh, limber tr birch trees and then he rides them down to the ground and then they pop back up. Some of the books that hold my greatest affection about trees are about an oak tree named George in a series my wife Kathy has written, George the Oak Tree. Trees also loom large in Scripture. Go back to the creation account, of course. The Garden of Eden included two notable trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge, Genesis 2. The tree of knowledge killed us. But the tree of life grows in the new Jerusalem alongside the river of life and it brings healing to the nations, Revelation 22. God said that anyone hung on a tree was cursed, Deuteronomy 21 and Galatians 3. And it was on a tree, a cross, that Jesus bore the curse of our sin. And as only God could do, the tree of shame and curse became for us the tree of life for any and all who trust the crucified Savior who hung there for us. The cedars of Lebanon form much of the structure in the interior of God's temple in Jerusalem. You remember it was carved then covered with gold. And to our purposes this morning, Psalm 1 speaks of trees. God says that the person who honors him in what he avoids... And in what he embraces is like a tree, a tree by a canal, well watered, always bearing fruit in season, always green and healthy. One could do worse, we could paraphrase, than be described as a tree. If you have your bulletin, if you don't, by the way, grab one there in the back of the auditorium in the edition now. One of those pages is the introduction material I'm going over today. We're starting a new series this morning through the book of Psalms. I'm calling Like a Tree you look at the image on the study sheet specifically there's a it's kind of hard to see but that's a picture of one of my daughters standing and looking up at this giant tree at Blenheim Palace where Winston Churchill was born and back in the day when those trees were being planted the British had a lot to do they had a lot to say they it was the thing of the day to have these crazy gardens be very intentional in the way they put together these estates. Blenheim is a palace, and so it was very well laid out. These trees are hundreds of years old, and you stand there and you just look up because they are so amazing. To be like the tree of Psalm 1 is to be in relationship with God, living life as He ordains. That kind of life is seen throughout the rest of the book of Psalms as well. As we work through Psalms, I hope that the effect is to become more thoroughly like the man, the tree man, if you will, that Psalm 1 describes. He is the epitome of the ideal godly person, and therefore he is ultimately an image and a paradigm of Jesus Christ, one that we aspire to be like. We should see Christ in Psalm 1. Romans 8.29 tells us that those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. You remember Genesis, God creates us in his image. In the fall, that image is marred. And what's God doing in recreation? He's conforming us to his image, Romans 8. 
And the image now is the person, the character, the life of Christ himself. Psalm 1 tells us a little bit about what that conformity looks like and what is required for that process of conformity to Jesus' image to be brought about. In this series, I'm not going to cover every psalm, and I'm picking the ones I want. Sorry. (laughs) And this is for time's sake, nor am I going to go through Psalms 1 through 150 in one fell swoop. What I'll do, my plan is to go through these a book at a time, So you know the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms, divided into five separate books. And so that's what I'll do. So I'll take a breather and you'll take a breather too when we conclude one book. I think in the book one, I think I'm going to have, out of 41 Psalms, I think I'll have about 20, maybe, maybe slightly less than that. The book title, which I think we tend to forget, Psalms, comes from the Greek in the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Jews produced... 150, 200 years before Jesus' birth, it means songs of praise, songs. You know, we, we put a sort of a religious face on the word psalm, but it's songs, plural, it's songs. Psalms mean songs. We read the psalms as literature, but in fact, they are songs. They are lyrics to songs. They were meant to be sung. They were sung, usually accompanied by instruments. Like modern songs, the psalms are a form of poetry. And guys, that means that though they may sound simple, Psalm 1 sounds very simple, and other psalms are like it, they sound very simple, but they're more complex and there's more to them than the simple first reading might otherwise indicate. They use language, they use uh, uh, expressions of, of literature. You look at them and you realize, oh, there's more complexity here than I thought when I first started. Figures of speech, literary devices... So we want to be careful that we don't just give a song, a first read, a first blush, and think that we know what it means. Uh, organized, I mentioned, in five books. The Psalms are written by several people. David primarily, at least 75, but you've also got other authors like uh, Sons of Korah have their name on 11, Asaph has 12, Solomon 2, Moses 1. And those 150 songs are divided into those five groups. And it's thought that as the variety of people wrote those songs and as those collections came to be formed, that the final editors wanted five books to represent the five books of the Torah. That would have been the most complete piece of literature of Scripture they had in the day. Uh, Your study sheet shows the division there. I won't go through those now. Besides the five primary books, groups they're also subgroups so if you go into the last the fifth group the hallel psalms psalms 113 through 118 were typically sung historically for the jews uh, during uh, unleavened bread in the spring Uh, things like the psalms of ascent psalms 120 through 134 were sung as families would go up they would see themselves as pilgrims going up to jerusalem and the temple and that's when those songs would be sung as well The first book of Psalms, 1 through 41, are almost all by King David. Not only did King David write half of the book of Psalms, but he's also the one who organized the use of the songs in in a formal form of worship in not the temple because it wasn't built in his day, but around the tabernacle. So you've got this in 1 Chronicles 16. It's talking about when David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. We read uh, the Ark, God set it inside the tent that David pitched for it. They offered burnt offerings, peace offerings before God. He appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the Ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and this you begin to see the organization that David brought to bear in the worship with songs of God in Jerusalem. Second to him were Zechariah, Jael, Shemi, Ramoth, Jael, Mattathai, Eliab, Benaiah, Obed-Edom, Jael, who were to, and think of a symphony or an orchestra as he describes the musical instruments that are being used here, harps and lyres, so you got the string section, you got cymbals, so that's Mark on the percussion systems, you got Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests were to blow trumpets, you got the wind section there, regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. On that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. 
So the songs are written, and now they're set to music. And just a couple verses in here, verse 8 and 9, he said, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. And he goes on, this is a quote from Psalm 105. So it was David that not only was primarily writing those songs, but he organized the use of the Psalms, the song, as Israel's hymn book. When they got together, and there were orders of priesthood and when they would come in and who was serving and all that. But David established the worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem around the book of Psalms, around the songs. Now, they were not only Israel's hymn book, but they were the early churches as well. Ephesians 5.19 says, Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. Colossians 3.16 says the same thing. In that day, the psalms were literally from the book of psalms. Songs and psalms. And remember, in almost all of those early churches, Antioch might have been a little bit of a, an unusual one. But usually, because the gospel was first preached in the synagogues, there was always a Jewish element in these churches scattered throughout the Roman Empire. So there were Jews who knew the book of Psalms. And so Paul says, sing the Psalms. The early church was singing the Psalms just like Israel was. As a caveat, because the Psalms were written in Israel under the Mosaic Covenant, not all they contain is directly spoken to us in the church. One of the things Christians almost universally stumble over are the imprecatory psalms. So the church, we're, we are routinely not singing Psalm 137, that we're rejoicing when our enemies' babies are thrown down and crushed on the rocks below. The church isn't singing that. I haven't heard it recently anyway. Maybe you thought it. I don't know. But anyway, you get the picture. So you get to the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says, pray for those who abuse you. Pray for your enemies. When we pray for the persecuted church, you know, routinely, that's one of the things. As Larry talked about this morning, here's a guy who's lost his family to persecution. And Jesus says, when those people abuse you in the new covenant era, we're praying for them because we want to be perfect like our Father in heaven is perfect. He causes the rain and the sun to fall on the unjust as well as the just. The Psalms, however, remain indispensable for knowing God, for knowing Christ, for understanding the character of God, for understanding portions of the New Testament, for gaining wisdom and encouragement that all people in every age need. We can't overestimate the importance or the value of the book of Psalms. Alan Ross, who's got probably the preeminent commentary set on Psalms today, said briefly, for approximately 3,000 years, Psalms have been at the heart of the spiritual life of the people of God. So going back to the time of David, about 1,000 B.C., for the last 2,000 years, the Psalms, the songs of Israel, have been at the heart of the spiritual life of the people of God. Martin Luther said, in part, you may rightly call the Psalter, the book of Psalms, a Bible in miniature in which all things which are set forth more at length in the rest of the Scriptures are collected into a beautiful manual of wonderful and attractive brevity. Like all God's words, the Psalms are eternal in their authority and their importance. For many of us, the Psalms are the place we turn to. If we're down, despondent, lonely, discouraged, we go to the Psalms because we're encouraged. And that's one of the beauties of the book of Psalms, of course, is not only that it directs praise upward vertically towards God, but because as those folks, just like you and I, as they lived life in fellowship with Yahweh, with God, they experienced all the changes, all the challenges of life on earth, and those are honestly reflected in Psalms. You know, Psalm 88, I believe it is, does not have a hallelujah chorus. And it's just the psalmist pouring out his heart to God saying, life is tough and I don't get it. And God's good with that. Like all Scripture, the Psalms, and this is so important, are ultimately the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, when you read the Psalms, some of these will pop out. If you haven't read them before, but you've read the New Testament, some of these, when you read Psalm 22, you know that's Jesus on the cross. Or when you read Psalm 110, and it's about not only is uh, Yahweh's Messiah a king, but he's a priest like Melchizedek, you know who that's about. But friends, there's tons of other Psalms that less directly speak about 
Jesus, his person, his character, and his work. The Psalms are full of Jesus Christ. In fact, when you go to the New Testament book of Hebrews, it's kind of like John's Gospel. It starts out with this, this bright, illuminating declaration that in the past, God spoke in many times and in many ways to the fathers and the prophets, but now he has spoken in his Son. And the Son is the effulgence of the light of the Father. And you say, if I look at a light bulb, where does the light of the light bulb stop and the light from the light bulb begin? And you say, well, you can't parse it. That's how Hebrews starts. But in the next two chapters, chapters 1 and 2 of Hebrews, when it wants to prove who Jesus is, nine different citations proving who Jesus is, all from the book of Psalms. Nine different Psalms in the first two chapters of Hebrews to reference Jesus specifically. Jesus quoted the Psalms. You'll see this throughout the Gospels. Jesus sang the Psalms. The songs that you and I read, Jesus sang those. In fact, the night of the Last Supper, he was probably singing the Hallel Psalms with his disciples. And if you remember with some of his last breaths from the cross, he quotes Psalm 22. So the Psalms are about Christ. Christ is in them. Jesus quotes them. So we want to make sure that we don't just look back and say those are old songs for Israel back in the day. No, because ultimately, like the rest of Scripture, they're meant to point us to Christ. My hope is that we grow more fully into Christ's image from our time in this book of praise. This isn't in Psalms, but from Isaiah 61.3. Isaiah 61, you probably know, quoted in Luke 4, when Jesus stands up and he reads from the scroll that's presented to him, he quotes Isaiah 61. And he says, I'm the guy, I'm the anointed one, and this is what I've come to do. Well, in Isaiah 61, it says the Messiah is planting oaks of righteousness that's what he's doing and as we go through the psalms or scripture generally day by day as believers as followers of jesus christ that should be part of our goal we want to be tree people we want to be compared to the tree of isaiah 61 and psalm 1 we want those key characteristics to be true for us so with that psalm 1 we'll look at some scripture now only three verses sorry i couldn't get more in this morning Psalm 1, this is uh, page 448. If you use a pew Bible, I'll read from the ESV. Uh, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are not ascribed to David. And the assumption is David didn't write these, though he wrote most of the Psalms in the first book, Psalms 1 through 41. And the thought is this, and it makes sense. The thought is that as the collection of Psalms was being brought together, because remember it was written over a period of time, that these two psalms, Psalms 1 and 2, were written specifically as an introduction to the collection to the book of Psalms. And it makes sense. And what you see in Psalm 1 is, you see that the life that pleases God, that's in conformity with Christ, is sustained by the Word of God. That's Psalm 1. Psalm 2 shows us that the life that pleases God, that's lived in conformity with His will, is lived willingly under the authority of God's Messiah. Both of these first two psalms warn us about wickedness and rejecting God's Messiah. And Psalm 1 starts with the phrase, Blessed is the man. The last line in Psalm 2 starts with, Blessed is the man. So very much these are meant to be an introduction to the rest of the book, and they tell us how to live like a tree in a totally positive way before God. So Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree, planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither in all that he does he prospers. This is an easy psalm to memorize, by the way. If you read this a few times, you'll probably have it. Blessed, uh, this, this is in plural. It means, oh, how happy is the person. You know, the wisdom literature in the Hebrew usually speaks in reference to the man. You know, Proverbs is a dad to son. 
This is talking about the ideal man. This doesn't mean women are excluded. This doesn't mean boys and children are excluded. This person, how happy is the person? This is the ideal person before God. How happy he is. And by the way, that phrase, blessed, does that sound familiar? If you go to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' phrase in Matthew 5.3 is the same as Psalm 1. Oh, how happy is the person. And then it goes on to describe what that happy person is like. The first description, I think this is interesting, of this happy, successful person is stated as a negative, not a positive. I wonder why that is. Why does God start by telling us that the happy, blessed person is, is referenced as what they're not characterized by? And this is Mike's thinking. You know, in the fall, God's image in humanity, His image bearers, it's marred. And we are no longer what we should be. And the world you and I live in today, and you know, you think of the progression you see in Genesis, read through, you know, by Genesis 6, every, every thought of man is only evil continually. That's us. That's what we're made of. And that's just carried on through the generations. So when God starts to describe the happy, blessed person, He says it's what's not true of them. They're not like the rest of the world around them. The happy, blessed person is not like the Christ-rejecting, God-denying world around them. That's the first thing. That if you don't come out from the world and the world system and the world that... Remember today, the world system we live in is the same system that crucified Christ and that rejected God in the Old Testament. If we don't come out of that, we're not in a place by which we can be in relationship with God. So it starts as a negative, what's not true of us. And remember, the Psalms are part and parcel of the people of God under the Old Covenant. And put that in perspective. Genesis 12, what does God do? He calls an individual idolater out of idolatry, Abraham. And then his descendants in Egypt, he says his descendants in Exodus, the opening chapters, he says, Israel's my son. He's not like the rest of the world. And then what happens in Exodus and Deuteronomy, he takes his son and he enters into a specific, categorically unique covenant relationship with Israel. Guess what? He's cut them out of the world system around them and he's brought them to himself. And they are now in a place where they can be blessed by God. They can be the happy, blessed people because he's taken them out of the world system around him. And that's got to be true for us too. He defines this three different ways. Uh, the blessed or the happy man, woman, or child doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. So we've got images that reflect reality. So the image is he's not walking in the counsel of the wicked. To walk means our way of life. What's true of me generally? What's my life characterized by? And my life is not characterized by the advice that comes from the ungodly world around me. You know, guys, I have to be aware that the counsel of the world around me is ungodly or I don't bother rejecting it. This is a big thing. And also, you'll see there's a progression here. So I'm not walking. Imagine a person and they're walking along. They're affected by things around them. They're, they're accepting or rejecting things around them, but they're taking a walk through life. And the first thing he says is, as they're walking through and they hear the counsel, this would be the philosophy the way of life, what people think is important, priorities. They're hearing this counsel as they walk through life. And God says the happy, blessed person rejects that counsel as they walk through life. That's the first thing. They're rejecting the counsel as they walk through life. The second thing is they don't stand in the way of sinners. So that person is walking through life. They can accept or reject the counsel of the wicked around them. And then they stop. And they stand, and they're not moving anymore. They're standing, and where they've chosen to stand, Psalm says, is in the way of sinners. It's they're living life the way those isolated, alienated from God live life. They're living, they're standing in the way that sinners stand. Their life is characterized by the sin of the world around them. And what's the last thing? 
They sit in the seat of scoffers, and the last is the worst place to be. They were walking, then they stopped, and now they're sitting. And the scoffer is the person who's hardened himself against truth. He's the cynic. He's the person who speaks against faith and against belief in God, or ultimate reality, or those positive things that God gives us. He's the scoffer. And the person that was walking through, if they imbibed the the culture of the world around them, they stopped. They started living like the world around them. And guys, eventually they sat down because they're now home. And the way of the scoffer is now what's true of them. There's this progression and it's down and it's away from God. It's away from life and it's away from blessing. Derek Kidner says, they've gone from thinking to behaving to belonging. The seat of the scoffers is where I've sat. I don't want to live there. Like Israel, the key question for us is, who is influencing me? When I apply this to myself, what is the counsel of the wicked? Do I recognize it? Whose philosophy of life am I following? You ask a person, what's their worldview? Many people say, I don't know what you're talking about. But you know what? They have a worldview. Because they're living on some principle, some set of ideals. They're living it whether they can articulate it or not. They're living somebody's philosophy. Someone's counsel is their counsel. What sources of information and values am I exposing myself to? What are the counsels of the wicked that I'm paying attention to? Where do I feel most at home? Among those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart or among those who belong heart and soul to the Christ-rejecting world. And let me suggest, we almost always overestimate ourselves. Now, I know we can get down on ourselves, especially if we've, if we've sinned, and we'll beat ourselves up. I get that. Jesus, has, his, his atonement's covered our sins. We confess our sins, we're good. I think the norm is we overestimate ourselves. We overestimate our ability to discern error, we overestimate how closely we're walking with the Lord. So Proverbs 4:23 says, "Watch over your heart with all diligence. Give it extra care all the time. Why? Because from it flow the issues of your life." Guys, our heart is being affected all the time. The Puritans were great at writing about the affections of the heart because they understood Proverbs 4 and they understood it's what you love That's what you'll give yourself to. What do you love? What counsel is informing what I value? What activity in the world around me is affecting what I think is worth having? That's the question for us. We live in this world system. We breathe its air. We swim in its waters. We hear its voice. Our calendars are set to its liturgies. The world is all around us. In fact, John says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The world you and I live in, we get it. Jesus is the ultimate victor. God's sovereignly over all. But for now, Satan is the ruler. He's the God of this world. The world around us is enemy-held territory. That's the world you and I live in. If we aren't aware of the siren song of the world, it's probably because we are already under its spell. If we don't see the error in the commercials, the books, the lifestyles of those around us, guys, it means we're not even in the game. We're in the counsel of the wicked. We're in the way of sinners. We might even be in the seat of the scoffer. If we don't proactively work against the spirit of the age in our own minds, thoughts, wills, affections, we will succumb to it slowly. It's not if, it's we will And there's a reason two times in Proverbs, Proverbs 6.10 is one of them, in which it says, I went by the field of the sluggard, the lazy person. Now put this in spiritual terms. Put it in the frame of Psalm 1. I went by the field of the lazy person. What do I see? What was all overgrown with thorns? It was sort of destroyed. The garden area that should have been well kept, it looked terrible. And I considered, and this is what I realized, a little folding of the hands and a little nodding of the head. See, it didn't take much just a little bit at a time, that's how our destruction comes upon us. We don't say we're going to go sit in the seat of the scoffer. We end up there. 
by degrees, slowly and slowly. So if we want to be blessed, if we want to take on more and more the character and the image of Christ, we have to conscientiously reject what Psalm 1 talks about, the counsel of the wicked, the way of the sinners, and the seat of the scoffers. It requires intentionality. Now, if you look at verse 2, there's only one positive statement that describes this person. It doesn't go into a long, it doesn't say they're nice to their pets. It doesn't say he's a good husband or she's a good wife. It doesn't say they're short or tall, good looking. Doesn't, there's no other qualifier here but one. Just one. They delight in God's word and they meditate on it. The, the happy, blessed person delights in God's word. I just ask you, what do I delight in? This is the affections drive us. If we don't delight in God's word, we won't spend our lives in it. So I delight, I love something, I admire it, I desire it, I value it. You know, if you go to Psalm 19, Lord willing, we'll look at it later, when David describes the value of God's word, you know he's delighting in this, don't you? Because he says there that God's word is better wealth than gold. Pile up all the gold of the world, David says, give me God's word instead. It's better than all the wealth you could amass is the value of God's word. So if it's wealth, God's word is the wealth. But he also says, if it's what I eat, guys, I love to eat. My taste is still bad from COVID, but you know what? Hasn't slowed me down a bit. I like the way food crunches and it's soft, or you know what I'm saying. I love eating. I love food. Well, when David compares God's word to food, he says, guys, it's sweeter than honey. We, we love sweets. We love, we're a sugar nation, right? He says, well, it's sweeter than anything else you can have, God's word. If God's word is food, it's the sweetest thing you can eat, better than anything else you can lay your mouth around. So we delight in God's word. Just ask yourself as we're describing this, is that my attitude? Is that my heart towards God's word? Do I delight in God's word. The other thing is he meditates on it. The Hebrew there means to murmur or to mutter. This isn't the word that means chewing the cud. That's another imagery. This word means to murmur or mutter. You know, in our day, we read, right? And probably most of us, when we're in the scriptures, we're reading silent to, silently to ourselves at home. But what was true in David's day? Not many scrolls around, guys. What'd they have to do? They memorized they memorize. So if you and I are memorizing, we're working at it, what are we doing? We're muttering. Have you, you guys, especially if we're around other people and I'm working on something, I'm saying it over, just barely audible in my own mouth. You know what I'm saying? I remember, okay, Psalm 1, how blessed is man. And if you came along and saw Mike or heard Mike, you'd say, oh, he's, he's talking to himself again, poor guy, you know, there he is again. But no, if I'm memorizing, that's the thought. I'm, I'm committing it to memory. I'm speaking God's word to myself so I don't forget it. So it's on my mind. I'm muttering it. I'm memorizing it. I'm meditating on it. I'm making it my, mind, my own. You know, when we eat food, this sort of goes to the, the image of uh, Jesus used in John 6 where he says you've got to eat the flesh of the Son of Man and you've got to drink his blood. And they're like, what are you talking about? You know, cannibalism, no, but I've got to be in you and you've got to be in me. When we eat food, that food becomes part of us. And that's the thought here, that when I meditate on God's Word, when I memorize it, I make it my own. It becomes part of me, and I become part of it, and it transforms me because it has that kind of transforming power. You know, if, if you have a very poor diet, you can still see people today, especially in Africa, they've got nothing good to eat. You look at them and you say, man, they're starving to death. Yeah, they are. But spiritually, if we could see our spiritual state, if we could see what we look like spiritually based on what we eat spiritually, we might look as bad as those starving Africans if we're not consuming and feeding on God's Word. The person who refuses the siren songs of the world around us opposed to God, who makes God's Word their delight, meditating in it so that it becomes part of them, will flourish like a tree in the most optimum settings. Uh, verse 3, what's this person look like? They're a tree. 
I want to be a tree person. I want to be like the image of the tree on the study sheet. The term, now this person, so, so what's true of them? They've rejected the philosophies of the world. They've embraced God through the wisdom of his word. And now this says what their life is like because of that, because of what I reject, because of what I embrace, bring to myself, this is what I'm like. Well, I'm like a tree planted by streams of water. The term for streams means literally split. I think the image is supposed to be, it's, it's irrigation trenches. That this would be like a tree in an orchard. And so the farmer has planted the tree where it's always going to have a constant supply of water because we're going to irrigate. You guys know in the Middle East, if you don't irrigate, you got nothing. You know, the Israelis have perfected irrigation, drip irrigation. They've made the deserts literally bloom because they know how to get a lot out of a little water. But you've got to have water or you don't have trees and trees don't have fruit. You've got to have water. This person that has rejected and embrace they're like a tree and they've got a constant supply of life-giving water they're never out they're never dry the water is always there water is life and this tree has plenty of it i'll just mention jeremiah 17 read later jeremiah 17 takes psalm 1 and updates it to jeremiah's day you know jeremiah's around 600 bc david's around a thousand when the Psalms were collected, somewhere in between there. But he takes that theme of Psalm 1, and he says, you know what? You can be a tree, and he used a little different language in Psalm 1, but he says, or you can be a shrub. And the person who trusts in men, the counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, the seed of the scoffers, those folks who trust in men, you know what he says? They're like shrubs. They're like these little dry bushes out in the middle of the salty waste desert. And basically, he's telling them, you can be a tree, or you can be this little scrawny shrub. And the difference is where they're planted. One has water and one doesn't. One trusts in man, and one trusts in God. In fact, he says, cursed is the man who trusts in man. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, and whose trust is the Lord. Jeremiah 17, look that up later. Trees reveal themselves by their fruit. They bear bear seasonally as they should. The fruit of the righteous is where we're interpreting what he says. What does that look like? What does it mean to be God's tree? What does it mean to bear fruit? Is the internal character of Christ formed in us as well as the external works of faith God appoints for us? The fruits of God's tree, these trees of righteousness, it's internal conformity to the image of Christ, but it's also the works God gives us to perform. And guys, you and I will go through different seasons of fruit bearing. You know, an apple tree, you say, whatever. I don't know. If it's April through September, let's say they bear apples. This isn't quite the same with us, is it? You may find seasons of life where you're really productive in certain kinds of ways. And you may find another season of life where you're not at all. And God's ultimately in charge of that kind of stuff. I mean, if we're faithfully plugging away, it's God who brings the fruit. But we want to be in the arena of this, and that fruit bearing is internal confirmation to Christ's image, and it's externally, it's the good works God's called us to be a part of. Our seasons may fluctuate, but God's producing fruit in us and through us. Its leaf doesn't wither because it has a constant supply of water. It's always green. This is spiritual vitality. Have you guys ever met a Christian that was not that healthy, but when you interacted with them, you just thought, this, this person is a powerhouse. Or you see a person that looks small and maybe scrawny and unimpressive, and you talk to them and you realize this person knows Christ, and I am nothing but impressed because they are so full of spiritual life and vitality. I want to be like that person. I loved, uh, I'm still finishing, a biography on William Wilberforce, and he was a slight sickly scrawny guy physically he got up in a in a speech to uh for parliament and this guy who was watching him looking at him physically sort of underestimating him he said i saw a shrimp get up on the platform become a whale because as wilberforce's internal knowledge and character came out in the speech his physical stature wasn't the thing anymore. The guy's like, oh my goodness, what content, what substance, what character this person has. 
So that's the vitality, the spiritual vitality. That's what we want. Whatever's going on in the body, some of those things, especially now in a season of sickness, so much we don't control. But spiritual vitality. By the way, when you guys are sick, are you like me? You know, when I get sick, I see myself in ways I don't normally see myself. Usually it's my sin. For about two or three days, a week or change ago, I was just like, oh, Lord, you know, take me home. All I can see is my sin, which is helpful. That's a reality check. The attitude of the heart, the disposition of the soul, that's a reality check. And thank God after two or three days of mulling in that, Lord said, okay, you've seen enough, let's move on. I want to see more of Christ, less of myself. Um, In all that he does, he prospers. This person thrives in all of life's seasons. This person thrives. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that we have health and wealth 24-7, because many times we won't, will we? This person thrives because of the inner strength they have in Christ. It doesn't mean they don't go through the storms of life any more than an apple tree doesn't go through winds and storms and hail, and they get stronger. You know, whatever doesn't kill us makes us stronger, right? Except bears. Bears kill you. (laughs) Sorry. That's a banner at my house. I can't forget. But that's the thought, that we prosper even in adversity. You you read biographies of Christians who have undergone great suffering and persecution. You know what you find out? They say, man, we, we thrived under persecution. It's not that it wasn't hard. It's not that they liked what was going on. But they saw God strengthen them and bring them into greater conformity into Christ's image through the challenges. So the tree David describes as healthy, fruitful, prosperous in all of life because of water. So sorry, let me wind down uh, quickly. What am I? Am I a shrub or a tree? If I looked in the mirror and had spiritual eyes to see, am I a shrub or a tree? The tree is the happy person. The water is God's word. The fruit is the internal transformation and external works of faith. The evergreen leaves are the vitality that comes from right relationship with the source of all that can be called life. Guys, we have to be careful about our friends and we read our Bibles. We assess the influence others have on us and we meditate in God's Word. I'm changing the phrase so you won't think I'm going to say read your Bible. We practice discernment in our engagements in the world. And this is the place we're supposed to start. Guys, many of us are not getting past this. Many of us are not doing the first step successfully, clearly. Discern our engagements in the world. The books we read. You know, if you go to school, the books you read are filled with the philosophy of the world. And I don't mean just science, social studies, English are probably the worst. They're filled with the philosophy of the world. Do you know that as a student in school or college? Do you know you're you're being confronted by the counsel of the wicked every day? You are. Do you know that? Do you see that? The, The news we check, I talked to someone just in the last week. They said, you know, I realize how discouraged I am because I watch. Now, listen, my friends, because I'm listening to conservative talk radio and conservative news. Is Mike opposed to conservative anything? No. But you know what? It's all negative. And they said, I realize my whole outlook on life is negative because all I'm hearing is negative. Even if it's true, do I want to steep my mind in all the things that are wrong versus having my mind set? God, what are you doing in in a current time and place? There's a place for all of that, but guys, too much of that diet, it'll take you down. It does take you down. Uh, The media lights we follow, what's what's setting our affection? What's setting our affection? Let me wind down with this too. The Apostle John, when he opens John's Gospel, he says Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Word. He is the fullest expression of the Father. Guys, the Bible reveals Jesus. To truly delight in God's Word is to delight in Jesus. To know God's Word is to know Jesus. They are inseparable. Based on my knowledge of God's Word, how well do I know Jesus? Based on my knowledge of God's Word, 
how well do I know Christ? You know, it's possible to be a Pharisee or a Sadducee and know God's Word and not know God. It's not possible to know God and not know God's Word. It's not possible. God reveals Himself through His Word. Am I a shrub or a tree? Am I refusing the values and philosophies of the world? There's no time in history that it's been more difficult for the first step to reject the counsel of the wicked than today. We are bombarded through our technological information age. We are bombarded with the counsel of the wicked every day. Do I delight in God's Word? Do I have a plan for meeting God and His Word this year? Guys, again, it's the first month of the new year. Do I have a plan of when I'm going to sit down and meet with God in His Word? There are study guides you can get in the back of the auditorium or the edition. It's a plan to read with God this year. Last, Spurgeon. Let this settle in. This is what Spurgeon said about Psalm 1 and the things we're talking about here, part of what he said. He said, What ill treatment is given to this angel from heaven? God's word, the angel from heaven. We are not all Berean searchers of the Scriptures. How few among us can lay claim to the benediction of the text? Blessed is the man. Perhaps some of you can claim a sort of negative purity because you do not walk in the way of the ungodly. But let me ask you, is your delight in the law of God? Do you study God's Word? Do you make it the man of your right hand, your best companion and hourly guide? And this is his conclusion. If not, this, this blessing belongs not to you. I can think I'm claiming something that I don't have. And his point is, if I'm not doing what Psalm 1 says, rejecting and embracing, I, don't, I can't lay claim to the happy status, the blessed status of the tree, the man of Psalm 1. It's not mine, because it's produced this way. Well, rise if you will. We're going to do something a little different. I invite you to at least. In the past, at the conclusion of a message, we have read a text from Scripture that had some affinity to the text we were looking at. This is another reason why I hope you'll pick up study sheets, because this is on there. When we sing or pray, we want to do what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We want to sing and pray with understanding. When I go through the Psalms, I'm going to have a short prayer that's based from the psalm that we pray back. If you do a study in Scripture, you'll see that most of the major prayers in Scripture are God's Word prayed back to God. And so this is a little exercise in that. If you'd like to, this is Mike's prayer from the verses we just went over. They're on the bottom of your study sheet, and they're here. If you'd like to, pray along with me. Lord God, in the name of Jesus, would you powerfully advance your work in making us more like Christ by emboldening us to reject every form of the wisdom of the spiritually bankrupt world around us and create in us a thirst that won't be satisfied by anything less than constancy in fellowship in your word of truth and the person of your Son by the abiding presence of your Holy Spirit. Amen.